Well, it's good to see everybody, uh, especially moms or anybody who's here and honor your mom, you know, because you know on Mother's Day what your mom would tell you, you need to go to church. So it's good to have you here. That's our little Mother's Day card to you. Uh, thanks for helping us feel like we're really something, you know, Superman or Wonder Woman, because uh, that's what you moms do. Uh, but what this is doing is we're, we're launching a new series because of where we're at in this Love This Book uh, reading plan. We're reading, coming to the end of the Old Testament. We're, we're going to uh, sort of celebrate the end of the Old Testament by talking about the heroes that we see there in the Old Testament. And that fits in with mom, because mom, you're a hero. Like, did you see Danae reach over and grab those chairs and pull them? That's like super strength right there. That was really pretty good. So that's a perfect day for this and a perfect moment for this. But what we're really touching on in this series is that we all have this longing for somebody to be a hero. Everybody has a longing. And you know what? No matter what happens in society, that longing's not going away. For somebody out there who can help us. You know why? Because God put it in us so that we would find him. That's why. So everybody's got this longing. In fact, that's why it's appropriate for us to kind of revisit a quote from a man that uh, some people call Mr. Superhero. He's a writer uh, of movies and director uh, of movies and television shows who uh, has done more probably superhero movies and TV shows than anybody else. His name's Joss Whedon. Some of you have heard of him, particularly if you're a millennial person, because you you know he did the Avengers movies and all that kind of stuff. A few years ago, Entertainment Weekly interviewed him because what's and and part of the interview caught my attention because what's interesting is Joss Whedon is also an atheist. I mean, he's a he's a he's a he's a lovable atheist because he's not mean to people uh, in his atheism, but he's just outspoken and said, I just don't believe there's a God, there's just no way. So in this interview with Entertainment Weekly, right toward the end of it, they said, okay, we gotta ask you this question. You don't believe there's a God? No. You, you don't believe there's any possibility of somebody out there who could help us some Savior? No. Well, then why do you make Savior movies? Why do you make, you know, hero movies that somebody comes to save us? Here's uh, Joss Whedon's answer. He says, my stories do have hope, because that is one of the things that is part of the solution, if there can be one. So, not real confident. We use stories to turn the mundane heroic and to fill some particular gap in ourselves. Yes. So, yeah, I write things where people will lay down their lives for each other. I have friends who are extraordinary. I love my family. But on a macro level, I don't see that in the world. So I have a need to create it. Hopefully, that need gets translated into somebody relating to, watch this, and feeling hope. Because if we take, away, take that away, then I'm definitely right that there is nobody out there that can help us. And I want to be wrong more than anything. I hate to say it. Very honest. That's what makes him a lovable atheist. But it's sort of like, where does that lead you? Okay, there is no God, there's nobody that can help us, but let's write stories and pretend there is, and maybe we can feel the hope, even though that hope is worthless, right? You see, that's why, what, 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 two things. First of all, that's why we need to talk about it today, because that's the way our world is going. That's the way our families are going, in, in, that, that are, are not experiencing the reality that there is somebody who can help us. And, and the, secondly, that's the longing that everybody has. Whether you're in church today or not, whether you're a Christian or not, everybody's got that longing that there might be some hope out there. You see, uh, what we're trying to do really in the series as we look at these Old Testament heroes is 
generally speaking, even Christians look at these Old Testament heroes and these Old Testament stories, and they, you look at them and, and you have one of two not so good reactions. The first one is, that couldn't have happened that way. There's no way that could have happened. Okay, so we'll touch on that a little bit, but it's really the second reaction that we're really going after. And the second reaction is, I could never be that. I could never be like that. I can't live up to those heroic things. And here's the, here's the reason God puts the stories in there. It's not because, you know, we got to try really hard and, you know, ju- jump over small buildings and stuff like that. It's not his thing. His thing is that he's trying to help us see that with him in our lives, with the one who really can help us, we can be those people. We can influence people. We can be the kind of people God meant us to be. And something inside us here tells us that that's what we were meant to be all along. We can live for that purpose that's put in us. And today I want to focus in on one particular superhero, one particular heroic person, and one particular quality of that person uh, that is just sort of tucked away at the end of the book of Proverbs. In fact, you can open there if you want to. Proverbs chapter 31. At the end of the book of Proverbs, there's this poem about the noble, or you could translate it, the heroic woman. The heroic wife, the heroic mom. And, um, and what she displays, if you take the whole summary of this, this poem that's like a Hebrew acrostic from verse 10 to 31 in Proverbs 31, if you take that all together, um, what you have is you, you have this person who lives her life in such a way that it transforms not only her, but it transforms the generations to come. In other words, she's generationally living. She's living for God. She's being transformed by it. So yeah, it's, it, it's affecting her life in a wonderful way. But she's living for the one to come. And what I'm telling you is that the Bible makes it really, really clear. And you've heard me talk about this when you've heard me talk about discipleship or the discipleship movement that's happening here. One of the key factors of that that's got to kind of change in our mind and our hearts is thinking and living generationally. Because the Bible says we, all of us, are called to live generationally for the next generation, for the ones to come. And that's true of moms, obviously, that's the obvious one, but it's true of dads, it's true of parents who are investing in their children, that's the easiest way to see it, but it's also true of people who will never be married or or don't have children. And it's true of people of all ages who are, are Jesus followers, God followers, that we pass it on to the next generation. They, or maybe you're helping a friend who's, who's uh, um, you know, a, a new a believer, and they're just they're in a different place in their spiritual pilgrimage than you are in their pathway, and they're, you're trying to bring them along and encourage them, and that's what we call discipling. Or, or maybe there's somebody that might even be older than you that's a new Christian that you're happy. It's, it's not about age so much. So this is all play, all generations. In fact, millennials, let me just give you a shout out because you don't get many of them these days, right? I, I look at you guys and I go, you know, there's some character qualities in you guys that you, you, you kind of naturally have come by. You have the potential and I know all the other stuff people give you a hard time about, but you have the potential to do way better than we boomers ever did, okay? We kind of screwed things up. But what I'm saying is, is if we tap into that and we say, God, what is it that you're trying to tell us through that? And that's what this woman's life does, that it describes us. Now, let me just say one more comment about, about her. Uh, as we've read through the Older Testament, if you've been reading along with this and, and love this book, uh, maybe you've noticed that it's sort of, it, it, at first blush, it seems male-dominated, right? I mean, seriously male-dominated. But if you just scratch below the surface, the honor for women and what God does through the lives of women, specifically mothering women, is phenomenal. Now, I, I mean, I know there's some really bad whack jobs uh, of women in the Old Testament. I mean, Jezebel, we looked at her a couple of weeks. 
Don't want to go there. If you were reading and loved this book this week, in, in the book of 2 Kings, you read about uh, Athalia, who has this beautiful name. But I mean, she is the original swamp monster, okay? She kills off all her family and just so she can be queen and just nasty, nasty stuff, okay? But those are the exceptions, not the rule. I mean, start with Eve. Eve, yes, eats the fruit uh, on the serpent's suggestion. Adam tries to blame her. And, and if you, I don't know if this is what God did, but if you look at between Genesis 1 and, or Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, when Adam says, the woman you gave me, maybe, it's almost like God goes, Tch. you know, I mean, he, 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 he curses it all because he has to because it's sin. But he doesn't, he doesn't buy into uh, Adam's line. And in fact, he says, hey, you're going to be the mother of the Messiah ultimately that I send to fix things in, in 3.18. Or uh, look at Moses' mother, heroic things that she did by saving her baby, by floating him in the, in the, around the bulrushes of the Nile River and, and then, you know, uh, Pharaoh's daughter comes down to bathe and, and she picks up this baby and then the mom steps forward and says, hey, I'll take care of him. So she actually takes care of him, but in Pharaoh's household, I mean, phenomenal stuff. Or uh, Hannah, the mother of Samuel, who set that to going. And then there's, then there's people like Ruth who become, she's not even a Jewish person, and she becomes the mother of of the messianic line, uh, the great-grandmother of, of David, and then, and then uh, ultimately of Jesus in, in the messianic line. I mean, that's really, I think, what we're supposed to say and see. So as we get into to, uh, Proverbs 31, and the poem's actually verse 10 to 31, but you know, don't worry, we're all going to look at the end of it. And, and if you're a woman who's been a Christian a while, and you've read through this, and you know what it says, and you've heard sermons on this, and you're thinking, okay, you're going to preach on this on Mother's Day? Just, I just want you to kind of put it outside. This is not a job description, you know, for mothers or for wives. Okay, this is more the fact, what can we learn from her? That's what this is in here for. And I'm so glad God put it in here because we, we need this. But, uh, you know, I, it's sort of like the pastor's job descriptions that's five, six, seven pages long. It's like, you know, even Superman couldn't do that. Uh, that's not what this is. This is an example. And what we're going to see in here are four um, qualities of this heroic woman that, are, that circle around this generational living thing. That if we implement them, if we live them, what we're going to find is not only are our lives changed, this is the secret sauce, not only are our lives changed, but the next generation, and we're going to have much more influence. What this is telling us is when you're grinding it out and being you know, the mom at home or being the dad at home or you're grinding it out and you're trying to be a Christian and live among your friends at work or you're sharing your faith and it just doesn't, you're having a far bigger impact if you're doing it this way than you ever thought imaginable because God comes in and fills those qualities and goes way beyond anything you and I could ever do and way beyond the possibility. So try to keep that in mind. Let's start in verse 25. We're going to just sort of see the, the crescendo of this whole, whole poem here about this woman. Verse 25 says, She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom, and faithful instruction is on her tongue. So the two words here. First one is laugh. She laughs at the future. Ha! You know, if other people worry, she's not going to worry about it. She's not freaking about it. I mean, she's, why? Because she puts on strength and dignity. And is it her strength and dignity? No. 
The poem's made it clear. It's God's strength and dignity. He's, he may not be mentioned here, but he's all around, uh, behind, and in, 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 in and about this poem. In fact, what we find out when, when, when you look into another poetic book called the Psalms is that this idea of laughing at the future when what's to come is a God quality. In Psalm 2, it says, ah, oh, the nations rage, and they get all twisted up, and they get freaked out, but the king of heaven laughs. And he just kind of mocks them, okay? And she doesn't say she mocks them, but it says she can laugh at it. I'm not going to worry about that. But the reason is because she knows something. She's got something embedded in her heart. And that's where the second word, the word faithful instruction comes in. If you've got a uh, ESV version or, version or the uh, New American Standard Version, it probably says something like teaching kindness, and that's not a bad translation, but here's the thing about this. It's a difficult word to translate because it's so huge. It means love, but not just love. You know, when we think of love, we think of the love boat. I mean, that's just such a small, tiny little thing. And we don't really have English word to describe what this is. This is God's word. It's a word you've heard me talk about before. It's hesed. She's got hesed, which is love, but it's sacrificial love, it's, it's unconditional love, it's loyal love, it's faithfulness, it's kindness, it's all this stuff. We don't have in English a word or even two words or even a full sentence that encapsulates what this word means. But she's got it in her. She's learned love from God and, and because he's loved her that way. And she's got the chesed stuck in her heart. And what he's saying is we can all have that. And this is the most powerful thing that floats impact for the next generation, whether we see it immediately or not. In fact, what this is telling us is that that's the first character quality. She loves God. That's why she's able to laugh at the future, because she knows God loves her, and she loves him back. Remember, remember uh, this is a quality that Jesus had. Remember, he said to us, his last commandment was, I want you to love one another how? As I've loved you. So he had this in him. God uses this term for himself more than any other word. This chesed love, this deep love, this deep grace, okay? And, and so Jesus had it. He passed it on his disciples. And then one of his disciples, a guy by the name of John, the youngest disciple, decided, you know what? That's the thing. And, and he became the apostle of love because he writes more about it, that character quality of Jesus, than anybody else. In fact, by the time you get toward the end of the New Testament and he's writing his letters, like 1 John, in chapter 4, it says, we love God, why? Because he first loved us. Isn't that a mom quality or, or what? We love mom because she first loved us. No matter what, she just keeps loving us and we can be boneheads and she still loves us, right? That's God. That's a God quality. And, and, and what it causes you to do is it causes you to love her back. It causes you to love him back. In fact, John goes even further. He tells us two things in the first part of chapter 5 in, uh, in 1 John. He tells us that, hey, this character quality of loving God, what it does in you is it causes you to love like God loves, number one. But secondly, it causes you to, to long for the things God longs for, and that changes the world. Watch this. Look at this. It says, everyone, this first two verses of John chapter, 1 John 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves the child as well. So if you love God, you're going to love his kids. That's how you know. In fact, that's what he says next. John is great at this. He always says, this is how you know this, this means, okay? This is how we know 
that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commandments. So you can't love other people if you don't live for God. That's why things get so screwed up in societies. So loving God like, like God loves, or loving like God loves. Secondly, in fact, this is love for God. Okay, good, John, you're giving us another definition. To keep his commands. What's a command? It's what God desires. It's his longing. And look at this. When you love God, pretty soon you, you desire it too. His commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. Nobody's ever going to stomp out that longing because he put it there. That sounds like superhero territory right there. Overcoming the world, overcoming you know, the challenges of this generation and, and, and living here and, and investing it in our kids or investing it in people that we care and love about or investing it in our friends at church and it starts to multiply out and it just ripples out. That's God's plan. That's how it works. That ha- that's how it, it rolls out and that's how God rolls on this. Now, we have seen this sort of generational living, the, the power of it just sort of going forward in, in the lives of people that like people like this woman touch. We've, you've probably seen it in families or, or um, you know, in, in a, a Christian person that you met that, you know, had just God used. And, they, you know, they weren't all about, hey, look at how God's used me. It's just that he did. And you saw some of this. But they really, really loved God. And God just, just you know, uh, caused it to them to love other people. And they had this big effect. You know what? We can see also how... Um, the opposite is true, that a, a, a turning away from God and his love can have a detrimental effect on a society. We've already seen this in the Old Testament, if you've been reading along. If you, if you read uh, in your uh, passages this week, um, by the way, aren't you having to read a ton of scripture in this right now? Okay, it gets shorter, all right? But if you've been reading uh, 2 Kings um, 17, or, I mean, you, you read a summary this week when, when the northern kingdom, you know, Israel splits into two after Solomon, the northern kingdom gets conquered, and they take everybody out, the Assyrians take everybody off into exile in 722. At that point, the writer of Kings gives this little statement, this little summary statement of what, what has happened the last few hundred years since the kingdom split. And it says the whole thing started, the whole problem started going downhill and started messing everybody up, when Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom, you know, after Solomon and then it split, the first king of the northern kingdom decided early on in his reign that he was going to sacrifice, not to Yahweh God, he was going to sacrifice to the fertility god Baal, Baal. And he was going to sacrifice bulls at the southern part of the kingdom in a city called uh, Bethel, and he's going to sacrifice at the northern part of the city, called, or northern part of the country, in a city called Dan. And he was going to sacrifice them on what they called the high places, which were the highest places in the city. They were the highest places in, uh, in the temple, okay? And so he was going to sacrifice these animals uh, there to Baal, just basically saying, you know, from now on, we're not going to serve that God. We're going to go a completely different way, loving something else, loving somewhere. And, and the results, were, a few hundred years later, were this, this demise of the whole country demise, and being conquered by this horrible group of Nasty people, really, this nasty army of the Assyrians. Well, you know, just so you know that, that act, there is actually a place like that, I want to show you this picture. You know, we, uh, this is from last year when we went to Israel. There was this, there's this tell in northern Israel, okay? Nobody really knew where Dan was, but they had this tell. A tell is a mound of dirt. 
They had this tell that was called Tell Dan. So that was a clue. <laughs> there might be Dan under there. So they start digging, and guess what? In the last uh, uh, 10 to 12 years, they found Dan. And this is Dan. And guess what that piece of, piece of rock right there is? This maybe should give you some spooky feelings down your back. That's the high place where Jeroboam sacrificed the bull. And we see the result. But, you know, just that's nice to see a picture and so forth. What does that mean for us? Do we have any, any uh, gods that we sacrifice in the high places to? And we've talked about this one. I think we have a problem in our country today with the autonomy God. The God that says, okay, you can do anything you want, be in, you're autonomous and so forth. And it results in all kinds of things. For example, since we're talking about family today, it results in divorces. All right? A high, extremely high divorce rate. Now, please understand me. The Bible is clear about this, that God hates divorce. But God uh, doesn't, um, he makes it clear that if, if there's adultery involved or there's abuse involved or that someone abandons someone, that there, there are some provisions for that, right? If it, that, that, that's scriptural. However, we don't do that in our society anymore. It's for whatever you want. It's for irreconcilable differences, whatever they are. In fact, I bet you married people, if you're married, you will agree with me. Every single marriage has irreconcilable differences. <laughs> yeah? Isn't that true? It does. And, and yet we sacrifice on that. And, and this is a good time to get a shout-out to some people that really need more of a shout-out than we give them credit for. And that is single moms. I don't care what the reason is you're single, but you're a mom, especially a little kids. You're doing heroic work. And I know, you deserve a medal. You deserve one of those really cool super shields like Wonder Woman's got or something. And, and I know that's not why you do it. You do it because you love but you are loving God by investing in those kids. I mean, it's hard enough when you got two parents. I understand that. But, you know, the result of that can be, in many cases, not every case, but the, the, that result can be the result of a, a, an autonomy God getting a hold of somebody and somebody sacrificing on the high place. What about this one? Do we have a fertility God today? Like Baal. Ba ba Baal was like a, a fertility God, not just for the dirt, but for like, you know, overly sexualized God. It was very disgusting. And, and this Baal, they were actually starting to sacrifice their children to it. Isn't that interesting? Well, we have a fertility God in our country today. It's the God of sex anywhere, anytime with anybody. And part of the casualties of that are millions and millions of unborn children who are being sacrificed in the high places every year. You know, it's a, we just got to speak the truth about this. And, and, and the reality is, that, that, that those things uh, aren't just relegated to the ancient past. But people who truly love God and are, are embodying it and experiencing it and, and sharing that with other people, loving other people like that, they have the power in the midst of that kind of thing to break through the darkness. Light cannot, uh, or the, the darkness cannot withstand the light. And that's why it's such a powerful impact and why this woman in, in Proverbs displays that powerful impact and it just it celebrates it and says wow look look what she's a look at the days to come and what's going to happen because she is the way she is but there's another uh, character quality i want us to see in uh, beginning in verse 27 it says she watches over the affairs of her household watching over you could call it nurtures the affairs of her household you could call it, she protects or oversees uh, the uh, the affairs of her household 
and does not eat the bread of idleness. She, she works at it. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and, and he praises her. And this is a quote from her husband. So men, this is Mother's Day. Memorize this quote and say it to your wife. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Okay? Say she'll, she'll enjoy that. But, but that's the reality. You know, that, that is saying people recognize this. Because of the way she's washed over, because of the way she nurtures people uh, and, and, and nurtures her family, or the nurturing aspect in us who, you know, we're, we're uh, not nurturing family, maybe, maybe we're not even married, but we're nurturing friends, we're nurturing other believers, we're, we're, we're you know, whatever God's invested in us, we're, somebody's probably nurturing us. That, it, it, it does this amazing and wonderful things. But um, I, I need to say some radical things about nurturing. Okay, today, and, and um, I'm going to try to be an equal opportunity offense, offensive person here, uh, but I got to say, nurturing our children as if the world that they're going to face is a pain-free world and that they can be comfortable all the time is not loving them because they're going to hit the buzzsaw and, you know, creating cream puffs is not loving to anyone. Now, I, I, I'm not saying we shouldn't be kind. Let, look, can we just all agree, let's be kind. But let's make the lowest common denominator the floor, not the ceiling of what our kids shoot for. Let's make their, let's nurture them toward a purpose in life, not just, you know, feeling comfortable or feeling pain-free, because that's serious nurturing. And that's what this woman does. She nurtures, nurtures seriously, authentically, toward the purpose and the goal of her children and her family's life. And it looks to me like even her husband's picking up on that. You know, it's sort of like these, these superheroes back where it says she's calm and, and about the days to come. You know, you, your heroes, one of the things about heroes is they, they rub off, their calmness rubs off on other people. Like when, when your kids, or, or when, when I was a kid, I, when something was going haywire and something wasn't good, I'd always look at my mom. If she was calm, I was calm, Right? I still have that in my life. Her name's Sharon. But I mean, you, you, uh, you, you, you look at those other people, and, and those are the, that's what we're nurturing comes from, okay? And, and it, but it's a serious kind of nurture. And in fact, uh, I, I need to, to say one more thing about how kids are nurtured in our society many times. And it, it's going to sound like, man, I, whoa, are you sure you mean to say that? But... Um, I'm going to be gone for three weeks, and I'm going to be away from email, so I can email. So here, here you go. Here's the bomb. Um, nurturing toward comfort alone. I'm not saying we shouldn't comfort our kids or try to comfort one another. God does that with us. That's a mothering skill that men should have too. But nurturing toward comfort alone breeds brats, and no one likes to be around them especially in college. So, I mean, there just seems to be a tendency of taking all the pain out of life, all the, and please understand me, I'm not saying take your three-year-old up on the roof and teach him to jump off. I'm not saying that. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying, you know, come out and, you know, you know take, taking away their toy as discipline is tough enough when you're three years old or two years old. But why do we do that? We do that because we want them to know how to deal with and treat others rightly, right? And nurturing them seriously. I ran across a, an example of this this week of this sort of nurturing for, for the you know, to goal of making cream puffs of everybody. 
Uh, and it comes from a university, a school. I don't know if anybody's got connections with this, and if you do, uh, I didn't know it. So here we go. It's the University of Michigan. Any Wolverine fans here? Good football team, good basketball team generally. But they have this thing that they started just this year, just in 2018, called the Bias Response Team. And the bias response team's job is to be the team on campus that if someone says something that makes you feel uncomfortable or makes you feel biased against, you get to report it to the bias response team. The bias response team will call that person in. They'll, you know, maybe do a re-education program for them or whatever. I mean, that's kind of to the extent that it is. And um, they've had 150 respondents say, hey, I've been biased against. And I I looked at the list. Now, uh, please understand me. There's stuff in there that's legit, you know. In a world where there's sin, you're going to always have wingnuts that say really awful racist things or sexist things or, or do all kinds of stuff like that. But here's how, the, here's how the dean of students defined bias. He said, and this is a quote when he made this announcement about people using the bias response team at University of Michigan. He said, if you feel uncomfortable about something, then you are probably biased against. Feel. Okay. So as if we're going to take that all, I sent my kids to college so they could learn about the real world, not live in some twisted version of Disneyland. I mean, come on, right? And, and that's, this, this woman is, is nurturing her family in the midst of a world that was out of control at this time, or very shortly was going to be out of control. Uh, and, and, and the reality is, is that she nurtured them seriously so they could live in the world. And the reason she would, could do that It's because of the third character quality that we see. It's it's in verse 30. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. Anybody want to say amen to that? I mean, some of us, uh, myself included, are learning that. Okay. But But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. The fear of the Lord. You know, I, I, um, I fear, pun intended, that our generation, our time, including preachers like me who were kind of brought up in the, the generation of the seeker-sensitive movement, have thrown the fear baby out with the bathwater. Again, pun intended. Because we've come to the point when we're, we're throwing out the feeling of fear. If you feel fear, then somehow that's immoral, and somebody who's causing you, not to, feel, causing you to feel fear, that they must not be a moral person. Well, what about God? Right? I mean, because, you know, our generation learned some things about fear. Because there's a lot of bad, illegitimate fear. You know, but fear is the source of a lot of mental, emotional, and personal problems, and that's true. But does that mean there aren't some good kinds of fear? And by the way, who put that fear, the ability to fear, in us? Right? I mean, I want my kids, I want my friends to have a fear of stepping in front of the max train. Right? We want that kind of thing. And so, you know, God gives us that so that we can kind of know where we stand and know who we are with regard to him, that he is God and we are not. So this woman displays the, 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 the um, quality of fearing God. We fear God. We love God. We nurture seriously like he nurtures us. But we have the fear of God, which is, which is a sense of awe, but it is genuinely experienced as fear. And, and, you know, I, I hate to turn to this, this particular theologian every time I talk about the fear of God, but the quote is so good. Um, uh, remember Yoda in, um, 
in, in the second Star Wars movie in um, uh, The Empire Strikes Back, he's training Luke, right? And Luke's about to go into this spooky thicket cave thing where he's going to meet himself and who he really is. And, and Luke says, I'm not afraid to go in there. And Yoda says, you will be. You know, right? I, I, we could use a little more of that in our world. I mean, you say, well, what is the fear of God? How does it happen? Well, I can only tell you my experience of how I learned it, all right? In, 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 in my uh, parental upbringing. My, my brother and I... Uh, shared a room. He's three years younger than me, still is. Uh, and um, we shared this room uh, in our house. And uh, he had this habit of calling mom or bringing her in three or four times or, or you know, singing or whatever when I was trying to sleep, you know, how dare he. And um, so I remember this one particular, I only did this twice. I was a slow learner. should have learned the first time. But uh, I said, look, Bruce, if you don't be quiet, I'm going to get up and stick socks in your mouth. And uh, he, of course, had to push the buttons. So he ah, started. So I jumped out of bed, grabbed the closest socks I could find. It happened to be the socks he'd worn all day, and shoved them in his mouth. But before I got him in there, it was, wah, you know, like that. And I jumped back in bed, pulled the covers up. But then almost immediately, I heard footsteps in the hall. That's the fear of God right there. <laughs> footsteps in the hall. And we could stand to experience some more footsteps from God. Have you heard God's footsteps in the hall? I mean, I, that, it keeps us from so much other junk. It, it short circuits so much other flailing around trying to figure out how to live in this world. If you just know who he is and have the respect to have a little bit of fear of God. In fact, the, the Proverbs, the writer of Proverbs, Solomon, in, in, in this case, Solomon uh, writes and tells us in the first chapter and in the ninth chapter what the fear of God does. Look at this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In other words, you really understand what's going on if you have the fear of the Lord because it puts you in the right mindset to receive what the truth is. But fools despise wisdom and instruction, and they're just flailing around. Or in chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So wisdom isn't just knowledge, head knowledge. It's actually the living out or the experience of that knowledge. So fearing the Lord is, is, is help you figure, out that, figure that out. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That's why God wants us to fear. He doesn't want us to fear just so we'll be scared, we'll be spooky, or all spooked out by Him, right? That's the result. And, 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 and so what that really says, if you have the fear of God, it really says to your kids, I'm not your biggest concern when you're disobeying. There's someone else you got to think about. It says to our friends who are maybe arguing with us about our faith, maybe they're unsaved friends, if, if we truly humbly live in the fear of God, it kind of says to them, you know what? I know you're viewing my faith as just my opinion, and it's really bothering you, but ask yourself why that bothers you, because the reality is, um, my opinion is not what you got to worry about. You got to worry about whether this is true, and there really is one who really cares about this, right? That it, it, it you, you can see how it just kind of impacts other people when you have that fear of God in your own life. You're not trying to slam it into them. You're just living with that kind of sense of humility before God. That makes all the difference in the world. In fact, what we find is that we don't if we don't help those who come after us to learn that rebellion ultimately results in the rejection of God, we're going to wind up with a Jeroboam problem. 
and things are going to fall apart and blow up. In fact, this week you're going to read a couple of scriptures that um, really kind of opened my eyes to this. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2 says this, Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. Okay, here's what he says. I have reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. That should be a solace to anybody who's had a child who's kind of been on, rejected them, all right? Because even God has that. I was thinking about that when I was thinking about some men's groups I've done here. I've done two men's groups that ran for two or three years over the last 15 years. And uh, we had a great time. We learned about leadership. We read books. We talked a lot about family and marriage. And both groups, almost as soon as we were done, the first time it was one guy, second time it was two guys, blew up their families and their marriages and ran off with somebody else. And I was like, God, what are you doing here? I'm, did I do something wrong? And then suddenly it dawned on me that Jesus had 12 and he lost one, didn't he? His name was Judas, right? And I'm not calling those guys Jesus. I'm just saying, you know, even God, everybody gets to make up their own mind. So we should take some comfort in that, even though that's not good, and that's happening far too often around us. The people are getting more and more selfish, not caring what happens in the next generation. But here's the thing. We learn from another uh, prophet, a guy named Micah, what is good and what simply God is asking us to do. It says in Micah 6, verse 8, it says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And here's what God says is good. And what does God require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. In other words, to, to live generously, generously as, as in act, act uh, mercifully, love and, and mercy, um, and to be fair, be just, and to know your place, which is the, where the fear of God comes in. Know where you stand, where, where, who's God and who's not. And the, what he's saying is, is I'm ask, that's all I'm asking for you, and we'll change the world together. I'm just asking you to be fair, be generous, and know your place. And, that's it. and the fear of God is the beginning of that, according to the Scriptures. But there's, a, there's another final uh, um, character quality of this woman. Look at verse 31. Honor her. This is a command, by the way. This Mother's Day command originally before the uh, greeting card companies came up with it. Honor her for all her, hand, all her hands have done, and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. You know what the city gate was? It, it was like city hall. It was the men's harumping place. They would go and harumph about stuff. And they would sign their contracts, and they would make their laws. And It's sort of like Congress. It's the harumphing place, right? <laughs> Speaking of Congress, by the way, a little footnote. Vote this week. Saw some statistics this week that, um, and some polling data that even here in our one-party state, and I'm not ripping on that one party. I'm just saying any state that's only got one party working is not a good situation. It's, it's an invitation for pretty bad controlling stuff. But in this state, your vote will count this time. Okay, the, the polling data looks like a lot of this stuff could go either way, a lot of candidates. Could, so vote, all right? I'm just saying. I know that that's feeling like some people say, that's not going to make a difference. It will make a difference this time, so vote. But again, this is the harumphing place. This is, this is the place where the laws are made and all that sort of thing. Here's the thing. This was a good old boys club. Women were not allowed no girls' germs here. That's kind of how they did it, okay? 
And, but that doesn't stop this woman. She just boldly goes where no woman has gone before, right? She just walks in there and she, she, she's, she's public about it, which is the character quality. I'm not going to hide who I am or what God's done in my life. So be public about it. That's what it is. You know, you love God. He'll nurture you. Nurture others the way God's nurtured you. Fear him. In other words, know your place. But then just be public about it because it's really on him anyway. Societies that celebrate those qualities in people, these are just the broad, big spectrum qualities, right? You you can't cover all of parenting or all of next generational thinking all in one message in 40 minutes. But here's the thing. Um, The societies over and over again in history, and certainly biblical history, but even in history that celebrate those qualities are the societies that go on and continue. The societies that don't, don't. But we've got no control over that. So what do we have to lose by going public? I know it's difficult nowadays because especially in our community and where we live in, in, in the, the big city that we live in, there's a couple of others, but it seems to be more exaggerated here where people tell you more and more and more, be quiet, don't talk about your faith, be private about it. Hide, hide out, go in your hidey hole. Don't talk about your morals, don't talk about your family, don't want to hear about it. In fact, it's even gone to the extreme in our city where people can say, well, you know what? Oh, you're a Christian? Oh, we got to get rid of Christians because they're the source of all evil in the world. I mean, my kids have heard that people say that. I've heard people say that. A lot of it comes from one really boneheaded comedian that's out there that's in the, you know, how do you like that for your life's message from a comedian that's on the TV and can't keep his own show on? But the the reality is, is that that doesn't matter because God says, you got nothing to lose because I am in this with you. And he's the one that put the longing in us for a hero in the first place. So how about we turn, we take the example of this woman, we take the example of motherhood, and we seriously get serious about next generational thinking, the generational thinking. Not that we live somewhere else that's not existing yet. We live for God in this generation for the sake of that one. How about we do that on these, uh, these qualities and ask God to help us in these? What would that look like? Because if that longing's really true, then we didn't come by it by accident. God put in us something that he already had. He longs for things to be different. He longs for things to be new. That's what's called redemption. It's what's called making things new, as he says. In fact, Jesus exemplifies this, and what's interesting is in one place, Jesus exemplifies it in a mothering tone. Look at this. He's, he's traveling towards Jerusalem, and he gets a vision, or he gets the, his first sight of Jerusalem, and here's what he says about the city of Jerusalem. Portland, Portland. Oh, wait, no, that's not Portland. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed, there's our word, to gather you your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. That's a mothering image. And he's doing it for the children, for that next generation. And you were not willing. The point is that God desires that deeply. And this is the pathway. Because it's not our job to change the world and to change the generation. It's just our, God, our job to live with God and help our families learn to do the same thing and our church families to do the same thing and our friends to do the same thing. That's all this is. Doesn't something inside you go, ah, yeah, that's, that sure would be cool, doesn't it? I want to do something again today uh, at the end of this 
that'll kind of lead us into communion. But at the same time, it really brings this stuff together and it gives us a chance to respond, each of us, to God and what he's maybe telling us right now through the scriptures. And as we go to communion, I'm going to play another song like I did last week. But this time, I'm going, to do, I'm going to play the video, and there's going to be the words that are being sung across the screen, okay? And we're going to do something that they, haven't, they started doing in ancient church times, okay? And it's called antiphonal singing or uh, responsive reading, okay? And um, what, what happens then is, is one person, the leader, will sing something, and then other people, every, the congregation, the people will respond, all right? And these responses are real easy. Uh, in, in the first two verses, there's four responses. Uh, uh, the first, first verse, the response is, we do. Uh, the second verse, the response is, uh, it is. And then there's a chorus, and at the end, there's one response that says, he is. Okay, and you'll see this on the screen in parentheses. And I'm, I'm just getting you set up, because I know you haven't done antiphonal singing for thousands of years, okay? And if you want to sing along with this, when you say it, sing it. But if you don't know, how to, you don't like singing, you're not a good singer, I don't care, just belt it out. Just, we do, okay, do that kind of thing. So let's practice. So we're going to say those three. We do. It is. He is. All right. If this is the desire of your heart, when it gets to those points in the song, just say it or sing it and tell God it's just between you and him, not me or anybody else. It's you and him. Check it out. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. That was uh, Andrew Peterson's uh, new song called Is He Worthy, by the way, if you're wondering. But 
Doesn't that kind of say what your heart wants to say? Things made new. There's only one that's worthy. So it's not our job. Our job is to focus on him and, and do what he's asking us to do. So here's the thing. Did you notice, too, that Jesus, what he did on the cross and rising from the dead, which is what we're going to celebrate in communion, he did that so that that could happen. He did that, and all he asked for us is to, to live for him, right, and to live in him. And that, that's the whole point of that thing that we said yes to God on when we sang that, that together. Uh, so as we go to communion today, just I want to focus that the God, Jesus made it possible, one of the main things that he was a part of that for was to make it possible for us to be new people and new creations. And if, if there's anything that kind of went off in you when we talked about loving God or fearing God or nurturing seriously or being public, you go, oh, man, I could use some more of that. Just make that your prayer as you take communion today. Say, whatever that means, God, I, I know I need that. Would you just help me see my way through to that? And he, I, I just know he will. We'll have stories around here like crazy, like we, we always do when this happens. And so we're going to take communion now. We're going we're gonna to go to the stations around the room as the song starts. Just stand up and uh, the gluten-free is over here. But um, it, we always have to say this because the Scripture says it. If, if you're not a, a Jesus follower, if you're not a Christian and you're, or you're not sure or whatever, just let it pass. That's okay. This is for believers who are saying, God, I'm committing myself to you. And, and so just, um, just, just stay where you are. Nobody's going to look weird at you. We don't do that anyway, but people will be moving around the room, so it won't matter. But when we do take those elements, we take the body and the blood of Christ symbolically, uh, to remember him and to say, God, we want you to do that. And it's teach me to be your person. Teach me to love like you, just like you asked me to do, and so forth. So as you do that, it, it, anything that kind of went off for you today, bring that to him as a prayer because this is the perfect time and place. And he's here and he will answer. Let me pray for us as we go. Lord, I thank you and praise you for the sacrifice, the love that is beyond description that we don't have language for, that is everlasting, that's sacrificial, that it's generous, that it's kind, that it's long-suffering. Lord, I thank you for that love that you showed when you died on the cross for our sins. And as we take this communion together, this Lord's Supper that you taught us to do, may we not only remember in a head knowledge kind of way, but we would experience the wisdom of you flowing through our lives as we've already heard about today. And that we would experience you as we take in these elements, that you would come to us and help us where we need the help, that you would do that generational thing in us first, your children, and that in turn you'd show us how to do it in others. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for being here, and that's why we pray every day and every Sunday in your name. Amen.